0: Well, hello there. This is Brian Melanson, the founder and president of M4 Innovation, and you've tuned in to this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast, coming to you from our studio in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We elevate the thinking of top healthcare executives around the United States. And today, we're gonna talk policy, and we're gonna talk about how some of these policy decisions coming out of places like DC might be impacting your employee benefit strategies. Got a great show, thanks for sticking around, here we go. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast. Again, we're here from Jacksonville, Wyoming. We're actually quite honored today to have a an esteemed guest from Washington D.C. joining us. So we've got Chris Condoluci on the line with us. Chris is actually the founder of CC Law and Policy, there inside the Beltway. You know that that particular practice. You know they they're a legal and policy practice that's focused on all aspects of the Affordable Care Act and how it impacts the employer and individual market. So Chris, welcome.
1: Hey. Thanks. Thanks for having
0: me. Boy, there's a quite, quite a bit going on in, in D.C. these days. You know, we, you and I just saw each other in person earlier this week, and it sounds like, uh, you know, on, on the topic de jure these days, given what just happened with the lower court ruling around the association health plan market, there's kind of some late breaking news with regard to that. Uh, you want to kind of set that up and talk about kind of where we are and, you know, what's going on right now?
1: Sure. So again appreciate it thanks for having me looking forward to it Um, so you know the association health plan uh, issue you know has been kind of a roller coaster I would say uh, dating all the way back to probably mid 2017 Um, uh, we saw uh, proposed regulations at the beginning of 2018 Uh, those regulations were finalized uh, in June of last year and uh, a number of organizations have established association health plans in accordance with the final regulations that were issued in June. Now, one thing that's important to note is that association health plans uh, aren't new. Um, there are a number of association health plans that have been in existence prior to these regulations being issued. And uh, as a result of these, let's now say, two types of association health plans, the nomenclature, the nomenclature in the HP space is there are these two different type of association health plans. One is called Pathway One Association Health Plans, and another is called Pathway Two Association Health Plans. You got Pathway One, you got Pathway Two. Uh, pathway Two is pretty easy to distinguish because Pathway Two HPs follow the rules set forth in these new regulations that were issued in June of last year. Pathway 1 Association Health Plans are association health plans that have been in existence prior to the regs and could be organizations that organize under these Pathway 1 rules, which is really rules that the Department of Labor has issued over the past 30 years. So you have Pathway 1 old rules, you have Pathway 2 new rules. Now, the reason I went through that, my apologies for the long story there, is because understanding this pathway one and pathway two is really important to get to your question, Brian. So the district court rules uh, here in D.C., so the District of Columbia uh, District Court ruled on March 28th that the final regulations that were issued in June of last year are invalid. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that pathway two HPs are adversely impacted because I told you pathway two are uh, governed by the final regulations. Well, interestingly, the district court spoke about pathway one HPs in their ruling and more or less endorsed that type of association health plan. So we now know that going forward, at least. Pathway two HPS are called into question by this district court ruling, and pathway one, on the other hand, are not. They can go forward, go forth, and be married, and be established and operate, et cetera. So the late-breaking news, again, Brian, to get to your particular question, is uh, we've been waiting for this administration to appeal the ruling, and the Department of Justice uh, has indicated that they will appeal the ruling uh, a an official notice of appeal has been sent up to the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals we don't yet know the briefs we haven't seen the briefs associated with the appeal so we don't know all the details of the appeal but based on everything that we understand uh, is that the ruling will be appealed in its entirety so that means All of the pathway two rules that were invalidated in March on March twenty eighth by the district court will be appealed to the DC Circuit Court. Now, what does that mean going forward? And I'll say this last thing, Brian, stop talking and turn it back to you. So, what does that mean going forward? Well, again, pathway one is not impacted. So, pathway one, folks, can continue. Pathway two, on the other hand, we will likely see some sort of guidance coming from this administration coming from the department of labor that more or less says hey pathway to association health plans that have been up and running since january 1 of 2019 in accordance with these regs that were issued back in june you can continue offering coverage probably through the end of the year because that's the normal course of how plan years or coverage years work but because of the question associated with whether these regs are going to stick around or not, there could be uh, a message sent that Pathway 2HPs should not expand. Or if they were to expand, they expand at their own risk because maybe the Circuit Court of Appeals upholds the district court's ruling and these regs go away even at the circuit court level. Now, there is a chance that these regs further, or this ruling at the district court level, let's say it's upheld at the circuit court level, is appealed to the Supreme Court. There is a strong likelihood that that happens, but that's another year plus away and really difficult for us to all speculate. So in summary about the late-break news, Uh, We know that appeal has finally been uh, sent over to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, We believe that it is an appeal of the entire ruling. Uh, We'll get details when we see those briefings, and we will likely get some sort of non-enforcement period that says, you're cool, pathway to HPS at least until the end of the year, but if you want to keep going uh, and you want to expand, you do so at your own risk. So with that, Brian, I will turn it back.
0: No, and I think there's some some real interesting questions that we can delve in a little bit deeper on this. I mean, if you look at, so you've got close working relationships with people like Kev Coleman. If you look at some of the statistics that he has at you know his AssociationHealthPlans.com site and other things, four out of five plans that have been put together since this Department of Labor guidance came out have been more these Pathway Two type plans. They're the ones that are associated around local chambers of commerce or are associated around trying to pull sole proprietors in, in certain communities together in a way where they actually have a, a shot at getting better benefits because, you know, let's be honest, it, the, the individual market right now is pretty – it's a pretty interesting place to be just given the fact that – I me just say in some ways it's kind of a fucked place to be just, just because if you're not getting a subsidy – the cost of those plans in that market are so high now that if you're if you're a working realtor or if you're working at you know Uber, Airbnb, and the gig economy, which now you know I think the latest stats I saw on that is that somewhere in around 2015, its last I looked at it, I think there's something about 16% of all the workforce in our economy now are in gig economy type jobs. There's got to be solutions for those people, right, Chris? And isn't this one of those things that actually creates an appreciable path for? getting people, you know, bundled together and allowing them to purchase insurance maybe at a different price? And isn't that an important issue, particularly as we start to, you know, work toward the next presidential election cycle?
1: 100%. I mean, 100%. And what's interesting about these, you know, final regulations that were released back in June and what was really the center, I think, of the the legal argument and the legal discussion in the court ruling was whether self-employed individuals with no employees – can indeed participate in an association health plan, which at the end of the day is an employee benefit plan. And so the question is, is this self-employed individual with no employees, is that person really an employer in in, in the the, the normal sense of understanding what a common law employer is? And are they also an employee in the normal sense of what a common law employee is? What's important to understand, and you touched on it, is we have a growing gig economy. We have an evolving economy. So the notion of whether a self-employed individual is an employer in the common law sense of how we all understand it, is an employee in the common law sense of how we all understand it, you know, it's, it's arguably being turned on its head, you know, that, that type of discussion, because these people obviously are working. They're working for themselves, so they should meet those definitions. But are we going to stay in kind of a, an old-world view of how employers and employees should be viewed from a legal perspective from a practical perspective you know that that's what i feel this judge kind of looked at and he relied upon to say that these self-employed individuals which the reds did allow to participate in this employee benefit the judge said no you can't do that so that's been been, been you know put on hold but the bottom line is is we have a growing gig economy it's not going to slow down anytime soon uh so if you want to figure out how to help these people and help the people that are taking this risk on their own to go out and be their own employee and employer uh, or employer and employee um you we need or the government needs to come up with policies to keep in stride with this evolving gig economy and the evolving economy as a whole and that's going to play out politically too you know uh, you know we have a important election coming up in 2020 you know, we're still a year and a half away, but, you know, when you have such pivotal elections, the discussions begin, you know, a year and a half uh, away, if not two years, and we're already in the mid- middle of discussions about presidential politics. So this issue, I think, is going to play out even greater, and folks are going to turn up the volume greater on this need to help self-employed individuals, this growing gig economy, and the need to find solutions.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the left's going to come back when this appeal goes out, and they're going to say, hey, the fight's still on, and if you support the cause of having really good comprehensive benefits that are, and we pool as many people together as possible so that we, we stop all this fragmentation from all these so-called, quote, and market innovations, that's that's going to be the argument. It's you know, that's been the argument in the individual market. It's been the argument, uh, you know, even against association health plans and others. is like, hey, you know, we want to try to cobble together in our states uh, it's as big of pools as we can because there's this, this feel that the law of large numbers applies to insurance, and that's, that's the way it needs to work. It's the fragmentation that hurts the industry. And, you know, the other side is to say, hey, these comprehensive pools are so expensive, that the market's going to innovate whether you want them to or not. And the output of all these are the things like association health plans. You get in the individual market, it's the things around short-term limited duration policies. I think one of the, the unfortunate things is that sometimes short-term and association health plans get lumped into the same argument. And the argument is they're both you know crappy plans, when the reality is, and I think you can talk about this a little bit more, association health plans aren't crappy plans. I mean, they have to very rigorous requirements on what they have to meet and how they have to be offered to the market and the business strategies around them and other things. So, you know, maybe get into that a little bit, too, just in the fact that there is this argument that, hey, we need a comprehensive pool. These association health plans and other innovations kind of pull away from that comprehensive pool, and they they, too, they, they segment these pools way too much, and then they bifurcate things way too much between healthy and non-healthy Therefore, the whole market craters versus the other side saying that these things stand up and they are options that the market's already seeking in the gig economy. There are options that the small group market's already seeking because that market's getting less affordable. There are options that the market's already seeking because the individual po- the individual market, if you don't have a subsidy coming f- in the form of you know hundreds of dollars a month from the federal government, you're kind of screwed there. The market needs these types of solutions. So y- y- you've got kind of this innovator market-based solution or it's the let's just take it all over solution and single pool, single pay, everything. And I think that's the the two paths you're going to see as we kind of get into this election season. You want to jump into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and, I mean, again, I think you're spot on. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I've been screaming at the top of my lungs for over a year now that association health plans are not the same thing as short-term health plans. And, I, you know, I, I was asked unfortunately, fortunately, I was asked to testify. Just as an example, I was asked to testify in front of the House uh, Education and Workforce Committee March of last year, so March 2018, uh, shortly after these regs were proposed back in January of 2018. And actually my testimony, I started out specifically saying association health plans are not the same as short-term health plans because critics of this administration And critics of anything that could be viewed as impacting the ACA were conflating short-term health plans with association health plans. And therefore, they were saying, well, short-term health plans are clearly junk insurance because they're not subject to all of the ACA's requirements. And they said, well, association health plans are just like them. And my response was, no, association health plans are not junk insurance because unlike short-term health plans, they are subject to all of the Affordable Care Act's coverage requirements. So you can't deny people uh, with a coverage with pre existing condition, no annual lifetime limits, you must uh free coverage for certain preventive services covering adult children up to age twenty six, uh, also subject to ERISA, HIPAA, Cobra, these are association uplands. So these federal also subject to state law benefit mandates in states if you're fully insured. And you're regulated uh, to the nth degree if you're a self-insured association health plan because you're treated as a MIWA. So state law and federal requirements requires HPs to have comprehensive coverage. And, again, I've been screaming that. So sorry I maybe played that out a little longer. But just then keeping going forward to some of the other points, you know, association health plans uh, allow uh, these small employers to band together and then create their own risk pool. Now, there's arguments of, well, maybe uh, these groups are going to band together to create a more favorable risk pool than what they could see in the small group market. But to an extent, you know, they should have the opportunity to do that because that's what large employers do. Large employers have their own risk pool. They, uh, they m- manage their own employees, the group's uh, health risks as best they can to manage the cost of their own risk pool. And an association health plan uh, uh, permits or provides that same opportunity to small employers as well as self-employed individuals. And the last point I'll say uh, to your market segmentation argument, you know, a lot of folks have been concerned about whether association health plans will segment the market. And my counter to that is, yes, there will certainly be some folks who will exit the individual market uh, who are self-employed and who will also exit the small group market. But if you're offering a comprehensive plan at a lower cost, Economics 101 tells me that, yes, young and healthy is going to go to that plan, but so are the less healthy and older populations because it's, again, a comprehensive plan that's lower cost. So it's a no-brainer for folks to exit to those markets. And if you have uh, less healthy risks or older risks exiting, just like you have younger and or healthier risks, that's going to offset in this whole market segmentation argument is not nearly as pronounced or will not be nearly as pronounced as many folks have been suggesting so that's just a little bit of an add-on to your point Brian
0: yeah and, we, and we've talked about this in the past too I mean you know what is what's the what's the market solution to all this you you've got the one one hand that says you know gosh all these things that are, that are you know where you get these guidance from the Department of Labor you get guidance from the IRS and things that come out of the executive branch that that might redefine the way – not necessarily redefine, but shape an opinion on how the, the law was written and what you can and can't do. It always leaves it subject to the next administration's interpretation, which creates a lot of volatility in the industry. And, you know, as you and I both know, healthcare hates volatility. They like things that they can predict and make the investments and build the models around and predict the risk around and so on and so forth. So, I mean, are, are there some newer solutions that are coming out there? Are there things like, you know, is, is the solution – association health plans, is it a combination of that and creating a captive that's perhaps regulated a little bit differently and, and has uh, opp- opportunities to be codified and in law a little bit differently to where you can start to push, you know, ideas and things around that front? I mean, talk to me a little bit about that, because, you know, what are some ways where you can actually create models that seem like they're they're a little bit less uh, volatile to, to you know, the whims of whatever the political, you know, <laughs> thinking is in that particular day, or is going to drive the most fundraising around a particular issue because healthcare is so hot around the country right now. You know, you either believe one or thing or another, and both parties are fundraising on both sides of that. I mean, what, what are some common sense things, though, that the industry can do to say, gosh, if, if we believe our, you know, there, there's sides that say our insurance organizations are doing a great job and we like what's going on in the individual market, we're happy with our coverage. And then there's other folks saying this stuff's getting a little bit too expensive. Perhaps there needs to be new solutions out there. That's why we're seeking the these, these uh, association health plan options why we're seeking different options in the individual market and, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, is, is something like a, a captive structure for that audience, is that, does that start to make sense again and, and revisiting what that looks like? Uh, talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, just focusing I mean, for the incumbent, you know, commercial carriers, you know, maybe your opportunities are a little more limited. Um, but, you know, when, when talking about, like, the captive space, you know, it's almost like I look at it, there's like three options out there, uh, and, and I'll think about captives in the context of small employers and or self-employed individuals, so I'll kind of limit it to that for a moment. You know, the three, three different options, one is, you know, one uh, opportunity that, that, that has been out there for a while now, uh, where a number of small employers self-insure, they are sponsoring their own single employer plan but they get aggregated together in a captive stop-loss arrangement. And the reason why they can be aggregated together in a captive stop-loss arrangement is because state law doesn't regulate stop-loss insurance like major medical. So this group small employer uh, stop-loss arrangement, captive stop-loss arrangement, is is not regulated like a MIWA. It's instead regulated like a a stop-loss insurance policy, which has its own set of rules. So that's one option um, that has been out there and is, is continuing to grow. The other is in the context of the so, uh, association health plan, um, but it's for a specific type of, let's say, employer with small employers or, or small businesses that are associated with the employer. And you know, in the association health plan context, a large corporation that has a franchisee base can actually – set up an association health plan for all their franchisees, for all their franchisee, uh, basically employers, and all their franchisee employees. And one way they could provide coverage or, uh, let's say, funding for that coverage is through a captive. And in some cases, many large corporations have their own captive arrangement already established that ensures the corporation for a number of different risks cybersecurity, workers' comp, et cetera, you know, is there an opportunity, and there are, but it depends on the facts and circumstances, where you can add a health insurance line of business to your existing captive and use that captive to underwrite the coverage for all of those employee, small employers who are those franchisees of that corporation's franchisee base. Then the third option is a little more riskier, uh, a lot more legal hoops to have to jump through, but why not just create a captive as a licensed commercial carrier? And that captive then becomes the carrier of choice when it comes to association health plans. So it's almost like some of these carriers, these niche carriers in the fully insured market that are either you know covering Medicaid-only plans or managed care-type plans. Well, why not create maybe a captive that is its own brand of – just underwriting association health plan coverage. Arguably, you can do that. You have to go through some licensing, or not some, you've got to go through a lot of licensing issues state by state, but it's not as if that idea is laughable. It's not out of the realm of possibility to do it. So anyway, those are some ideas or some things that, that I've been kicking around, as have some others, that could be some opportunities for folks to think about.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's fascinating. And I think you even kind of switching gears just a bit, I mean, you and I have also had a lot of discussions around one of the things that appears to be a pretty significant legislative priority this year, which is all the things going on around surprise medical bills. And, you know, when you start having stories as an industry end up on NPR and end up in, in Kaiser and in other things where you've got folks that go in, and I think I've talked about this in, in previous podcasts that have you know had a nail removed and you know from their toenail and it's like a $17,000 surprise bill because of an out of network doctor those those are issues too and those are things that I, the industry is now kind of figuring out it's where it wants to side on these things and i think their lawmakers are trying to figure out the role they need to play to help mitigate this and you kind of push it in a world where We've been advocating for a while now more consumerism and more high deductible health plans and plan design choice and you know shifting more cost over to consumers. I think what doesn't line up is is you start to ask a consumer say to take on, you know, six thousand dollar out of pocket liability in any given year, and you're asking them even for some of the the, the easier things to figure out what Cost might be if you go to an immediate care clinic down the road because you had an issue with with one of your children that you want to get resolved, and then you end up with a you know eight hundred nine hundred dollar bill for that service. There there are a lot of people out there that are saying that are advocates for consumers, saying that you know that world is causing people to you know be afraid of getting care, deferring care, not not going to get the things that they need to get done. But one because they don't know what these things are going to cost. Two because they're afraid of what the, you know, several hundred to several thousand dollar liability might be. And then they're on, you know, more, ad, there's orders of magnitude stories even worse where people have gone in and, uh, you know, an ER-based situation or people have gone in and uh, a situation to have something surgically done. And there were out at network doctors that touched portions of that procedure. And the bill ended up being, you know, the $50,000, $60,000 out-of-pocket liability for the consumer because the, the plan didn't cover any of those out-of-network expenses. So talk to me a little bit about that as a priority and what you think is going to happen in, on that front.
1: Yeah, I mean, surprise medical billing issue, Everyone's you know, it's it's, it's a, 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 an issue that both sides of the aisle here in Washington, D.C., uh, are paying attention to and supportive of. We obviously have seen the number of states uh, try to take some action in the surprise medical billing area because it's an issue. And and I, I kind of simplify it as in two scenarios uh, where, let's say, uh, surprise medical billing is most problematic. Uh, you have a scenario where you have uh, a patient getting uh, medical services at an inpatient, uh, or excuse me, at an in-network facility by out-of-network providers that happen to work at that particular in-network provider. Uh, the second scenario is when you have an emergency situation uh, where the patient is taken to an out-of-network uh, uh, provider and the resulting in, in, a, uh, in a surprise medical bill being produced. And I think that everybody, both Democrats, Republicans, and I think everybody in the industry, be it the, the carriers, be it the providers and the physicians, be it the employers, um, they all agree that the patient should be held harmless. That the patient should be protected. So if the patient's protected, everyone agrees with that, then the next question is as well, what happens when there is additional expenses that need to be paid for that's over and above what the insured plan is going to pay for or the employer self-insured plan is going to pay for? So who pays? If the patient's not going to pay, well, the providers are going to say, I'm not going to pay. The carriers in the employer plan say, I don't really want to pay at least anything more than reasonable compensation. So where the fight is coming down to is what is reasonable compensation for services provided by an out-of-network provider in this in-network provider setting, as I described, and reasonable compensation in the emergency out-of-network provider setting. And that's where the fight's going to be. What's the reasonable comp? And what we're hearing from folks is they're saying, well, let's peg it to a percentage of Medicare. That, that's what happens in the industry anyway. Oftentimes when there's a dispute between a provider and a carrier or a provider and a self-insured employer, they say, or the provider says, we're charging you 250% of Medicare. The employer and or the carrier comes back and says, you know what? No, I'm only going to pay you 180% of Medicare. And then they agree on 200% of Medicare. That's how it works. Well, do we have some sort of federal benchmark, some federal uh, ceiling that says, you know, this is as high as the reasonable compensation can go? And is that 125% of Medicare? Is that 150 percent of Medicare? Is that 180% of Medicare? That's what's being hashed out here in Washington, D.C., Other options is what providers are are preferring is arbitration. So you kind of get back to my example of, hey, provider says 250 of Medicare. Uh, Carrier or employer says something lower, and then they have a bit of a back and forth and arbitrate what that number should be. Um, That arguably is not where employers and carriers want to go, but that's where the debate is going. Um, I do foresee that we will see legislation from the Senate. In the next probably two weeks, once, uh, once uh, Congress gets back from their Easter uh, recess break, uh, and that will, I think, ignite uh, a, a robust discussion in Congress uh, on surprise medical billing that could very well culminate in legislation being enacted uh, by September of this year. So if you are a stakeholder uh, in the surprise medical billing debate, you know, fasten your seatbelt. Things are going to heat up for you.
0: Yeah, and Chris, even on the point of arbitration, I mean, that's really it's kind of how the world works today. I mean, it's just basically moving it more toward a, a legal arrangement that says instead of this being, you know, hashed out in civil court somewhere, we're going to, you know, have it go to an arbitrator, and the arbitrator is going to bind whatever it is we agree. That would be, that's that seems like such a small change given how big the problem is.
1: Yes, I don't disagree. But the question that, that the carriers or the... the point that the carriers and/or the employers would say, the payers out there would say, is arbitration is resulting in unreasonable compensation that we're we're ending up paying to these providers, and that uh, especially in this in-network provider, out-of-network provider, specialist context, that if we continue to allow arbitration and let in the care in the payer's mind and the payment of unreasonable compensation, then you are just promoting bad behavior. You're just promoting and encouraging, you know, the specialists out there to remain out-of-network providers working at these in-network facilities. And some of these in-network facilities providers are even saying to their out-of-network provider specialists, hey, cut me in to a percentage of the unreasonable compensation that the payers would say that you're getting paid. And so we're going to continue allowing these out-of-network providers operate in our in-network provider facility. And again, isn't that just promoting bad behavior? And you know, arguments, you know, minds can differ on that. But if you're paying unreasonable compensation, if that is indeed true, if you buy that argument, well, then isn't that just inflating the already inflated cost of healthcare? And we're never going to, you know, bend the cost curve, or bend the proverbial cost curve. If we continue to promote bad behavior, I'd say that as a question mark. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with my point, but that's the debate.
0: Yeah, and and you know, I mean, it, it just to me it, it it you know when you think about it, holistically, it's it's like it's we, we've created this 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 world where it, yeah, you could have a logical argument that you should be afraid to get sick because of the way the industry, at that point, kind of. Kind of jumps on on the illness. It, not everybody does, but some some folks do, and then you end up with these these surprise bills. And it's it's the everyday consumer that gets that gets kind of lost in all of these arguments. That you know they're the ones that are paying the biggest price. I mean the the body, you know, our bodies all at some point break down and take a left turn when they should go right. You know, the system today, when you take that that left turn instead of going the direction you want it to go, you know, it's 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 becoming a more scary place because you don't know. What service, what service is covered and what doctors covered and everybody that's coming into the room while you're recovering, whether they're in the network or not, and how that's running the till on the other end and then what's covered and what isn't. So I think this is a really – it's a timely and very important issue that needs to be solved. But I, I think the, the question also becomes are we, are we moving more in the direction to where this just, just pushes us to an outcome where we finally get to some, like you were describing earlier, some single – regulated price that says this is pretty much what what's allowed for these particular procedures this is the benchmark the standard for which the industry needs to work from is that one outcome is the other outcome that it moves us into a world where we just finally get into bundled products and everything's bundled and there's a price associated around that bundle and then you navigate the system understanding that so it's almost like a bundled indemnity approach at that point i mean what are your thoughts on that chris
1: yeah, I mean, you put your finger on another kind of uh, debate in the healthcare space is, you know, h- how do we reduce healthcare costs? Uh, is it, let's say, a price control type of approach? Is it a, a government fixed system type of approach? Or alternatively, if we want to stay in the private based marketplace or in, in that type of, of market segment, uh, is the better approach a value based care? Approach well. What's kind of underneath a value-based care uh, approach? Well, one uh, one option under you know, value-based care solutions or strategies we've seen is bundling uh, bundling payments for uh, particular episodes, uh, and or just bundling uh, payments for uh, cost of care uh, on, on a number of, of episodes, not just one particular episode, and so. Kind of tying this bundled payment type of approach back to the surprise medical billing, that actually is something that is being discussed uh, internally uh, among staff uh, in, on Capitol Hill in the Capitol and um, in, in the respective House and Senate office buildings. Uh, you know, can we come up with some sort of bundled approach where uh, the patients protected, and they do come to some sort of agreement on what reasonable compensation should be? And this is the amount, provider, that you're going to get paid for these various episodes, not just one episode, but these various episodes. Um, and, and we'll see how that plays out. Now, does that then, though, get you back to creating a federal benchmark, like that this bundle happens to have to be at 180% of Medicare or 150% of Medicare? Maybe you wade into those waters by going down this bundled approach, uh, but nonetheless, It is an idea, it is approach, and maybe there is some way you can uh, bundle, (laughs) no pun intended, the arbitration approach that the providers and the physicians prefer with, let's say, a benchmark approach that the payers prefer such that we get to a common ground where the patient's protected, uh, the providers are getting paid, the payers don't think that they're overpaying, and that in the end, we're keeping costs. Somewhat low uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And my man, I got to say, this has been this has been awesome having you. I know we've talked about doing this for a while, and I'm glad our our schedule's finally lined up to where we can get on the get on the podcast together and talk. I, I hope we'll be able to do it again. I mean, your insights are always right on point, and even earlier on the Association Helpline side, just so timely. Literally, something that happened just just a, a few minutes ago. So, thanks for sharing that with us, and you know, really glad that we were able to. You know, like I said, put this together, Chris.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, let's do this again. It
0: was fun. Sounds great. I appreciate it. So good that's weekend. yeah. Have a good weekend. So so that's that's Chris Condolucci again, the uh, founder of CC Law and Policy. You know, in Washington D.C., and in my mind, probably one of the one of the smartest, uh, most connected people on on these topics, particularly as it relates to the the employer market, as it relates to the individual market, all the things that were wrapped around the Affordable Care Act. So love, love having Chris and his perspective. You know, Chris is working on a number of interesting things in the Association Health Plan front. And, you know, if you have, have any, any intrigue and in how he can help you there, we'd be more than happy to hook you up and uh, see what those dialogues could look like going forward. You know, and then from our end, just you like conversations like this. You like Q&A like this. You like debate around, you know, politics and policy and how the commercial and political influences converge and how it impacts our industry. We've got things coming up with our, formulate groups, which is a really tight community of diverse minds, just like people like Chris and others that, that get together and have these kind of discussions and think about really things from, from two directions. You know, what, if we look five years out and then work backwards to year zero where we are today, what does that look like? And then there's, there's people in the room that say, I got to look at, you know, year zero today and work our way toward year five, you know, so what's, what's the next six months look like? And then how does it impact the next five years? We got both those types of minds in, in the same room coming at things from different perspectives in the industry, which makes for incredibly interesting, not only conversation, but the opportunity to form real interesting partners and partnerships and real interesting potential future investments and real interesting market strategies that, that all kind of come together there. So keep in mind, you know, as we continue down the path this year that you know our, our groups get together, we've got one that's only product and distribution related that's coming together in Atlanta. That's uh, July 15 to 17. That's just right around the corner. Of any interest, reach out to us on that. And then our our bigger group, which is you know really takes back all the the discussion around even what the Jackson Hole group did when they were here in the valley uh, from 1971 all the way into the mid 90s. That group is something that we put together that really is a really interesting place for top policy minds, top commercial minds, all to come together and really talk about where the industry is going in the next five years. And that one. Is October 14 to 16. Any interest around the two, let us know. You can hit us up at hello at m4innovation.com. That's m4innovation.com. Appreciate you listening. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back here in a couple of weeks with another Altitude Sessions podcast. Until then, be good, and we'll talk soon. Thanks.